Socialism always becomes dictatorship. That's true. And capitalism always becomes cronyism. You have to take that seriously. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. Before we begin, I just want to say thank you so much to every single one of you for listening. If you want to make a difference and help us out, please share this with one other person. We'd really appreciate it. Today, we're about to speak with Michael Munger. He's a political scientist from Duke University, and he's written a lot about capitalism. What is the system? What are the incentive structures? And today we ask the question, is capitalism sustainable? Michael, thanks for jumping on today. Uh, Really looking forward to this conversation together. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, We've uh, we've got some pretty interesting topics we, we're going to cover today. Capitalism, sustainability of that system. You've thought and written a lot about it. Uh, but before we jump off the deep end, perhaps, what's a bit of your background? Um, you know, what got you interested in these topics to begin with? Well, I was catechized as an economist. I actually worked at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission in the first Reagan administration in antitrust enforcement and so was interested in the problem of industry structure and the, because we depend on industry to do a lot of things. It makes stuff, Mm -hmm. it provides things for consumers, it provides employment, and it provides income for stockholders. So the, the idea of manipulating industry structure to try to make it better is very appealing. Then I taught a number of other places. I've actually been in political science since 1986, and being and the middle ground between political science and economics, I think, has left me a little more skeptical of some of the claims about capitalism that are made by economists. But I'm also a little more skeptical of the claims about state regulation that a lot of political scientists might make. So I, I mostly stand alone at parties. <laughs> you can make friends with either side or enemies with either side, sounds like. Right. But if you disagree, you're going to be enemies. So I mostly make enemies. Yeah. So, jumping in here, how would you define capitalism? Capitalism is a structure of distribution and financing that sits on top of markets. So, markets are a set of institutions for reducing the transactions cost of voluntary impersonal exchange. That is, there's an exchange between two of us. We don't have to know each other because there's a set of institutions, property rights, uh, mechanisms for adjudicating disputes, a financial system. All of those make us possible for one-off transactions that we can trust. Now, on top of that, capitalism is a way of creating finance for large industrial operations, operations that are larger than any individual could possibly manage. And so the the difficulty with capitalism is that it's often unstable. And in fact, the very argument for capitalism is what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction, which means that we're creating new products. They're better than the other ones, but all the older products then, if you were, if you had a factory, you had a bunch of workers that made that, now you're unemployed. And so there's a, the argument for capitalism actually contains part of this argument for instability. But I think there's actually a one-word argument for capitalism, and I try to say this wherever I go because I think people have lost sight of what it is. That argument is liquidity. 
liquidity. Hmm. Liquidity is the ability to aim a fire hose of adaptable assets at any new profit opportunity. And profit opportunities are a signal in a market economy saying, do more of this. People want more of this. So recently, we've had supply chain problems. Well, that means if you can find a way to get more delivery of this stuff faster, you can make profits. But the effect of it is not profits. The effect is more people get more stuff much faster. So the the one word argument for capitalism is liquidity. You know, the way you describe it, it sounds like a great system. Why are we perhaps becoming more and more interested in arguing for other systems? There's there's a large cohort currently that is becoming less interested, less invested in capitalism. Why might that be? I think there's two reasons, and both of them are actually pretty good. I have to admit that the people <laughs> that are just religiously pro-market uh, have a problem. They They need to listen. The two arguments are first that the concentrations of power that result from the expansion of size in what in my most recent book on the sharing economy I called platforms. Platforms are ways for peer-to-peer transactions to take place. So Uber doesn't sell taxi rides. They find a way to somebody who has a car in a few minutes gets together with someone who needs a ride. Airbnb doesn't sell hotel rooms. They find a way to get someone who has a room that's going to be empty and somebody who needs to rent a room. So these peer-to-peer transactions are great. The problem is the platforms, usually apps on which those peer-to-peer transactions take place, become really large because they have a portfolio of reviews that help them solve the problem of trust. You could start up a new uh, rideshare company And I probably wouldn't use it because you don't have any people that have reviews that say your drivers are safe or that your passengers are safe. So these platforms Mm -hmm. become giants. The problem with giants is that they have political power. And if you have political power, it's just inconsistent with democracy. So capitalism has created these giant structures. And this has always been a problem. You know, the the trusts of the late uh, 20th, 19th century. But... We've never had such large concentrations of relatively few firms in so many industries. And so that creates a problem of political power. The other problem actually relates to democracy in another way. I don't know how you could, uh, who to blame. But the other problem is it turns out that for many companies, it's more profitable to spend on lobbyists and lawyers than it is on engineers and consumer products. And so if I'm going to invest, I'm better off trying to get subsidies or favorable tax treatment from the government. So and these two things are intertwined. If you're a large company and you focus all of your investment, and I'm making air quotes, because it's not really investment. You're not producing anything of value. All you're doing is getting favorable government regulation. So I think those are the two problems. One is giantism which means that the companies have too much power. And the other is cronyism, because the companies are able to get help from the government. And the story that I told about profits, that's all positive. These companies are making profits by getting government subsidies, and that's a net loss to consumers and taxpayers. Both of those things are really bad. And pro-market people need to take both of those counter-arguments seriously. Well, there's a lot of really good points there. Let's highlight cronyism first, just as a a term. What is that? What do you actually mean when you're saying cronyism? Cronyism is a name 
for what public choice economists and political scientists, and that's the branch of political science that I'm in, it's called public choice. Cronyism is a name for successful rent seeking. So rents are artificial prizes that are created by the state. So maybe a tax benefit or a subsidy that we take taxpayer dollars and we give it to some company. And oftentimes those things are worthwhile. You know, this is something we want more of. We want to have more green energy and so we'll subsidize it. The problem is that companies can use political power to attract illegitimate subsidies just because they're politically powerful. They can use it to attract favorable tax treatment so that large corporations pay almost no taxes. And so the result is they're benefiting from their political power by securing these rents from government. Now, the competition for rents, public choice economists would say, actually depletes. It actually uses up a lot of resources because it's a pathological kind of competition. So the short answer to your question is cronyism is a pathological kind of competition where companies are competing politically rather than in the market. Interesting. It sounds like there's two, if you just take corporations, there's two ways you're kind of isolating to make profits. There's one where I can look at market signals. I can see maybe some inefficiencies. I can create a better means of production. I'm providing a value to my neighbors, my community, my economy, and I'm getting profit because of that. The other is what you're calling rent sinking, which is um, leveraging the political system to better benefit you. Is that a appropriate summary? Or? It, it is, and I would say the big difference, it's not perfect, but the big difference is mm-hmm. the extent to which participation in those two systems is voluntary. If I'm a consumer, okay. I can decide not to buy your product. If I'm a taxpayer, I cannot decide not to participate in cronyism. Interesting. And so... These some of these subsidies and and what would be identified as rent sinking and cronyism are legal, and so that instantly becomes quite murky because some folks would say, "Well, you know, what's the is there an ethical foundation for anything?" And how do you navigate that when say it's more profitable to have a rent seeking? Um, format for your company as opposed to just producing a better widget or whatever for the economy? You, you've put your finger on what I think is the key point. So in the my previous book, which was called Is Capitalism Sustainable? The short answer was no. And the reason okay. is just the <laughs> This argument. is the Cliff Notes version. Well, they're, they're right. So you can go on now, but, but you yeah. can't pass the test. You need to know the reason. So the, but the, the, the short answer is no. And the the reason is, think about the argument that pro-capitalism people make. Look, people acting in their own self-interest do something that benefits the entire society. And so we don't need virtue. We don't need people to altruism. We don't need people to care about others. Well, wait, the logic of capitalism is I should try to maximize profits. Rent-seeking is legal, but immoral. That means that if I, as a manager, say I refuse to do this, some other manager, and there's a competitive market for managers, some manager who's probably as good or almost as good as I am, but who is willing to engage in rent-seeking, 
will be hired and that will increase the accounting profits of the firm or a corporate takeover artist. And again, a tender offer for the stock of a corporation, that's well within the logic of capitalism. I can earn higher profits if I take over your company, fire all of the virtuous managers who say, this is legal but immoral, I don't want to do it. And I'll find people who think, hell, it's legal, we might as well do it. And that's going to raise your stock price, and I'm going to be able to finance the cost of my tender offer. So a competitive market for managers or the market for mergers and acquisitions mean that capitalism is not sustainable on its own logic, because the pursuit of profits is going to drive companies rationally. It's legal, but immoral. Well, I don't care about immoral because competition makes me act immorally. That's why capitalism is not sustainable, I would dare say. If you put it in Marxist terms, there's a contradiction in capitalism itself in the sense that the pursuit of profits will drive people to do this in a democracy. Interesting. So is there a system in which capitalism could be sustainable? You, you mentioned two. earlier that in, in a democratic system, it, it, it tends towards cronyism. Is there a political system where it could be more sustainable, perhaps? I, I, I think there's two. And um, usually when I make this argument, people say, well, look at Singapore. It's a dictatorship, and yet it's a robustly capitalist system. Um, okay, you're taking that in a whole interesting direction. It's true that Singapore is a dictatorship. Um, Singapore is lucky in a sense, although actually it's, it's fairly politically repressive, but it's lucky in the sense that the dictatorship in Singapore actually cares about protecting property rights. There's no guarantee that's going to be true in a dictatorship. It's certainly not mm -hmm. necessarily true in the United States. So I hope nobody is proposing, and therefore the U.S., like Singapore, should be a dictatorship. So democracy, I think, is sort of a given. Now, the other way that it, that it could work is to have constitutional limitations on the extent to which government can provide and corporations can seek rents. And the question is, how can we sustain those constitutional limitations? So instead of a democracy, it's a constitutional republic with limits on what the state can do. But passing constitutional limitations that stick is actually very difficult. But I, I do think it's possible. The reason I always talk about this is I think all we need is better voters. All we need is voters who will say, I will not do business with a rent-seeking corporation. So we could have a list of socially responsible companies, or maybe the worst, the worst 25 offenders for rent-seeking. All of their profits come from rent-seeking. And then we could have a divestment claim. There's a lot of social justice divestment movements. Let's do that. Divest from these rent-seeking corporations. So if voters and consumers punish companies that act this way, we can at least the mar at the margin make capitalism more sustainable and more manageable. Well, that's an interesting point because when I think about the system you're describing, capitalism, and then think, breaking it down and thinking about, well, who are the actor groups within that? There's the voting public, there's the politicians, and then there's capitalist corporations, um, however you want to term these. And so it seems like the politicians are incentivized to detract towards rent-seeking behavior. The capitalists are incentivized to move towards rent-seeking behavior. But the voting public is not necessarily. And so it sounds like you're saying that's perhaps the only opportunity here 
to avoid capitalism becoming cronyism. Is is that an appropriate uh, I, I think conclusion the, there, or how would you think about I think that? it's the best opportunity, because there is okay. something else that's coming from the other direction. Companies tend to invest in plant and equipment and new products when they are young. It's when the company is mature that it starts turning to rent-seeking as a way to protect itself from new competition. Mm -hmm. So if you have a vibrant, dynamic economy with a lot of new business coming in, and remember, liquidity. In the United States, we have Silicon Valley. We have a number of other places where it is possible in an afternoon to get $15 million of funding for a new idea. Well, that company, that new company, for the next five years, is not going to engage in rent-seeking. So as long as we have constant new vital firms entering industries, this isn't as much of a problem. So the U.S. has largely escaped much of this. I often share with my students a 2008 piece in the New York Times that talked about the fact this giant monopoly will never going to be able to escape from it. And they were talking about MySpace. Well, by, by 2008, 2009, MySpace was done. Facebook is done now. Usually by the time it starts to get regulatory concern, there's something else that has replaced it. None of my students use Facebook. So the, the, these giant platforms, by the time we become worried about them, something else is moving to replace them unless we start to regulate in a way that reduces the dynamism of the ability to enter. So I think that's another answer is new young firms don't engage in rent seeking because at that point, it's still more profitable to try to increase market share the old fashioned way. That really makes me think about the, uh, the boom bust cycle of capitalism and then what we now know as bailouts where we're trying to minimize that cycle and reduce the amount of corporations that are going bust. And, and we're removing that natural cleansing cycle, it sounds like you're saying is very important. And many folks would point back to, many folks I've spoken with here, they point to 1907 as being quite pivotal. The first time we really stopped that true, almost reckless capitalist system and bailed out uh, entities that should have gone bust. How do you think about bailouts fitting into this process you're talking about? Well, that's a complicated question. So I'm yeah. going to give a superficial <laughs> answer that is unsatisfactory, but it's the best I can do. Okay. <laughs> so pro-market people worry about the booms, actually. They worry about artificially inflating the booms. The Keynesians and the people who want to regulate, they worry about the busts. And so it's interesting that they've diagnosed two different problems. The two sides have diagnosed two different problems. So suppose you say, we, the government, stand to bail out companies that are about to go bankrupt to reduce the size of the bust, to preserve employment, and to make sure that there's no bankruptcies. Well, if I'm an investment firm and I know that, two things can happen. I take a bunch of risky investments, and if I win, I get to keep the money. And if I lose, I get bailed out. What could go wrong? So the, there's an old saying in finance, if I owe you a million dollars and I go bankrupt, I'm in trouble. If I owe you a hundred million dollars and I go bankrupt, you're in trouble. And so the, the, it, it is the bailouts, the promise of bailouts are what cause the artificial booms. 
and an artificial boom has a bust that's actually much worse. So paradoxically, it's the promise of bailouts that cause bigger busts, and that's what the bailouts were designed to solve. So it's actually the bust, to some extent, that are being caused by the promise of bailouts. So the the difficulty is people who say we're going to have a policy to, of bailouts are making the busts much worse. The reason is that they are expanding the booms into bubbles, and bubbles always burst hard. And so do you think about that process that we need more of a natural cycle of booms and busts to avoid this movement towards cronyism? Or well, is that a little too... Remember, I, I just make everybody mad. Because I'm sort of in the middle, and I think both sides have a point. So I have a, uh-huh. I have a paper in the Georgetown Law Review that asks another question: Is too big to fail too big? And again, the mm-hmm. Cliff Notes version is yes, yes. If the, just the fact that a company is too big to fail, its bankruptcy would cause systematic harm to the financial system, means that you need to break that company up, and it means we're going to pay costs of inefficiency. I understand that. But if a company is too big to fail, it is inevitable because the, the government cannot promise not to bail it out. Look, we, we're not going to bail you out if you go bankrupt. I know that's not true. So I will overinvest in risk. I will leverage myself to the hilt. And then if there's a problem and I go bankrupt, I will be bailed out because the government can't afford not to because it'll really harm the economy. So I remember 2008, 2009, a bunch of my friends are saying, well, what would you do? Look, the Great Recession is a financial catastrophe. Yes, and that's because these companies knew you would bail them out. I agree, we have to bail them out now. But five years ago, if we could have broken up Goldman Sachs, if we could have broken up some of the larger firms so that none of them, if they individually go bankrupt, would cause a recession, would cause a financial crisis. So as I said, I'm sort of in between here. I actually think there are some things the government can do. Is capitalism sustainable? No. Is too big to fail too big? Yes. Well, so I want to ask you about incentives. Um, Charlie Munger has that famous quote of, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome, which is, I I think, so true. And it sounds like the system we have slowly incentivizes a move towards cronyism. What would the system need to look like to incentivize away or at least just keep on track? There's a way of analyzing uh, problems in political science and economics called a prisoner's dilemma. And the Mm -hmm. idea of a prisoner's dilemma in game theory is that if everybody acts on their incentives that they face, the result is that everyone will be worse off. So if you can create some kind of agreement where we all act collectively in ways that benefit each other, and that agreement is enforceable, we can avoid the prisoner's dilemma. So it seems to me that since we would all be better off, consumers would be better off, and actually politicians would be better off if they didn't face competitors who will engage in rent-seeking. Corporations would be better off if they didn't face competitors who will engage in rent-seeking. It's just that since it's legal but immoral, if I don't do it, you will, I'll lose. So we need a system where rent-seeking is much more difficult. And so the 
The two ways to do that are constitutional restrictions on the ability of the government to hand out favors using discretion, and voters who punish politicians and corporations who publicly do that. But it, for that to happen, we need better information. So academics like me need to do a better job of publicizing. These are the corporations that engage in the most rent-seeking. When folks talk about the merits of, say, socialism or mm -hmm. capitalism, the person who takes the other side of either argument often says, yeah, well, that works good on paper. But in the real world, socialism tends toward dictatorship, capitalism towards cronyism. So the question back to you is, in the real world, is this possible? There are no examples. <clears throat> there are no examples of socialism working. There are some examples of capitalism working for a considerable amount of time. And so um, I gave a talk not long ago at Middlebury College, um, and a number of the students said, well, shouldn't, wouldn't it be better, you know, as I talked about, is capitalism sustainable? Wouldn't it be better if we were socialists like Sweden? Well, wait, Sweden in 1992 said, you know, socialism is not working. We want to be able to have a welfare state. The only way we can reduce poverty is to have capitalism. So Sweden sold off all of their state-owned enterprises. It's really, it's easier to start a business. If you look at the Freedom Index scores, Sweden on most of them is one of the top 10 most capitalist countries in the United States. So is Denmark. So is Norway. So the, the so-called socialist countries of Northern Europe tried socialism, found it didn't work, and realized that the way to solve the problem of poverty is to allow inequality. Poverty and inequality are different things. If you're worried about poverty, you need to have enough economic activity to be able to finance a robust welfare state. So there are no examples of a socialist country solving the problem of poverty. China, until 1973, was a communist country. And then 1973, they started to introduce market reforms, and you look, and there's a gigantic increase in income per capita. The amount of poverty in China has fallen by more than 60% because they adopted markets. So socialism doesn't exist. It's not an alternative. People are just mistaken about that. The countries they think are socialist don't exist. Now, there are socialist countries. Cuba, North Korea, you can't possibly point to those as being models of prosperity. Well, you know, that makes me think about the, uh, there's such a powerful debate right now between uh, capitalism and socialism. But it seems like it really has to do with what, what side you're on, whether you're the left or the right. The left is debating cronyism versus socialism. But it sounds like they're saying capitalism versus socialism. The right is debating capitalism versus dictatorship, though they say they're debating something different. And so we're having this debate, but we're not really having a debate. We're just like shouting different things at each other. We're picking the best of the version we like. We're comparing it to the worst of the version we don't like. How else could we have this discussion where we're coming to the table on a bit more even playing field? That's one of the things that I think is most important. And that is that we need both sides, all sides, because there's more than two, but we need all mm -hmm. sides to recognize that they need to be comparing real world alternatives. So mm -hmm. in the 
uh, theoretical way that government regulation is usually taught. The motivation for it is what's called the market failure rationale. So externalities, public goods, national defense, the things that uh, markets can't do perfectly. And they say, and therefore the state should do them. Well, wait, we need a theory of government failure too. You can't compare markets as they are in the state that you can imagine. However, you're exactly right. People on the right do the same thing. They look at the state we have. Democracy's messy. It's imperfect. And then they compare markets that they can imagine, which is pure capitalism. Well, that's not right either. We actually have cronyism. So we need to compare markets with all their warts and constitutional democracy with all of its warts. And it's very difficult to, for people to take that seriously. I think your formulation is right. And that's one of the things that I have tried to do. I don't have much credibility with the left. But I have quite a bit of credibility with my allies on the right. And I'm saying, look, you need to take these arguments seriously. The people on the left are not wrong that cronyism is a problem. When you have these discussions, how does that go when, when you say something like that? Because in today, that sounds very challenging. Hey, listen, the, the critiques on the left are right in some instances. Have you thought about that? It sounds like a non-starter almost. How do those conversations go? Well, I actually do have a lot of credibility because I've worked in this area for 40 years and it is known that I am a serious supporter of markets. And I do say, look, socialism is actually not an alternative, but you need to understand there's a problem with capitalism that you should take seriously. So my approach to it is to contest their claim, that is the pro-market people, that this is just a matter of semantics. And seriously, they think that this is a valid argument. I'll point out all of these problems with regulation and subsidies and rent-seeking, and they'll say, oh, well, that's not real capitalism. No, but it's what capitalism becomes. They use this argument all the time. Look at Venezuela. Socialism always becomes dictatorship. That's true. And capitalism always becomes cronyism. You have to take that seriously. There is a tendency within the logic of capitalism itself. And I actually find if I get five minutes to talk to people, they say, that's actually right. You have a good point. I just can't talk to everybody in the world for five minutes. Would that I could. <laughs> no, but we can send them here for the Cliff Notes version. So I'd, I'd like to talk about power and money because it, they're, they're very powerful um, forces in our system that we currently have. And I, I love thinking about it, but I all, honestly have a difficult time separating the two sometimes. And so I want to put that to you. How do you think about power? How do you think about money? How are they related? There is a difficulty with the large companies, the large platforms that exercise disproportionate democratic, political power, whatever you want to call it. So the problem is we're just not set up to handle this. And so if you look at the Senate Democrats, if you look at the Federal Trade Commission right now and Nina Khan, uh, you look at my my former Duke uh, Law School colleague, Zephyr Teachout. She has a book recently, just break them up. What we need to do is break up these large corporations. Mm -hmm. That actually won't help. The difficulty that we have is antitrust is focused on what's called the consumer welfare standard. And as long as it benefits consumers, it's okay. Well, Facebook is free. You can't say that they're raising price. Usually the argument for breaking up a company is 
they're restricting output and raising price. So standard oil, the problem is they're restricting output and raising price. Or the telephone, the uh, railroad trusts, the problem is they're raising prices on farmers, although actually they weren't, but that was the claim. Facebook is not raising its price. It just has power over our private data. It's not an antitrust problem. It's a power problem, and we need to think of a new regulatory framework. But the, the focus of the left on antitrust is going to make things worse. Things can be pretty bad, and yet it's still not true that government can't make them worse with misguided policy. So how would you prefer that we think about um, antitrust? I, it, it, we, need to, we need to recognize it's not an antitrust problem. And so one okay. of the things, for example, we might do is use Glass-Steagall-style regulation. Remember, Glass-Steagall was the claim that financial corporations could not be both a casino and a grocery. So you can't be a retail bank and a commercial bank that makes large, risky investments. You have to stay apart so that that risk doesn't cross. So you could say Facebook cannot own TikTok. Facebook cannot own other companies where the use of the data without my permission. So Facebook harvests my data and then just gives it to someone else. So we need to have, I need to have more control over my individual data. So one thing would be Glass-Steagall, where companies can be big in the, in the platform because the platform provides service. But that company can't expand into other areas because that's where power comes from, is where they have power in all these different areas. And they use my data in all sorts of different ways that I don't know about. Another way that I think we could at least begin to solve the problem is to think of the large companies as something like public utilities. And there, there are people on the left that have made this argument, so more like common carriers. And so we recognize it has to be large. Nobody talks about breaking up the electric company and having four sets of wires run to your house. We just have a set of rules that we use to regulate it. The third thing is blockchain identities. So if we had a way of making my identity pseudonymous, and blockchain technologies make this simple, then... In order to engage in a transaction or participate in Facebook, I only have to reveal the levels of my identity required for you to make sure that I'm trustworthy. You can't link that to all of my other data. So the, the pseudonymity of blockchain, I think, is a, a big way of protecting this concentration of power because then nobody knows who. All I need to know is, can you pay? You say you want to buy something. Can you, in fact, pay? Yes, you can. All right, we're done. I don't know who's buying my product. Those things would really limit the power of these big platforms. I'd love to dive into your thoughts of digital technology in a moment, but I, um, I want to ask again about power and money. Does, in the capitalist system, Ultimately, are we seeking power or are we seeking money? Or is it impossible to separate the two? Let me answer your question a different way, because that was the question sure. you were really interested in, and I kind of wandered off. Right <laughs> okay. now, it's interesting. Right now, we're asking the wrong question. That is, how do we use antitrust to solve this? That's dumb. It can't possibly work. Don't do that. Once we start asking the question you just asked, how can we keep power and money separate and think of new ways to do that, I would be happy. I don't know the answer. What I'm saying is we're asking the wrong question. 
As long as we're asking the wrong question, there's no hope of solving this problem. So all I'm saying is stop thinking about this as antitrust. I don't know the answer, but I do know that if we think of it as antitrust, we're going to make things worse. I see. I think that was a really good wrap wrap around. Um, Because I have a very difficult time separating them. I don't know how we're going to separate them either. Um, But so... You did bring up digital technologies, and I would like to get in that a little more. I believe you're writing a book currently. The next book you're working on is touching on that. The, 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 the next book that I'm working on is about antitrust and industry structure and blockchain technologies, yes. But you know, whenever somebody's working on a book, they can always talk smack about how great it's going to be. This is, a, <laughs> this is an unwritten book, after all, so it's marvelous. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so, is it is it coming out soon, or is that no, more long term? It's not even project? written. It's not even written. Mm, gotcha. So I, I have a couple of papers on antitrust, but the, it turns out that this is a really hard problem. But I've actually mm. been reading Foucault, so the people who took the problem of power seriously, and yeah. Michel Foucault, interestingly, he was sort of ideologically hard to classify. Towards the end of his life, mm. he was reading Friedrich Hayek and talking about markets. So um, I think Foucault is someone who was enough of a fresh thinker that we can go back and get some insights about political power and concentrations of power. Because he talked about panopticon and the, the way that the government has power just because I'm always in principle under scrutiny. Well, without blockchain identities, Facebook and all the, the our, our cell phones, all of the data that are collected about us, it's a digital virtual panopticon. I have no mm. privacy. Corporations and the state, and the distinction doesn't matter much, they're both large, powerful entities. Corporations and the state know everything about me that they want to. Now, maybe they don't care, but if they want to, they can find out everything about me. I have no privacy. And it's been said that most people commit three felonies almost every day because some of these things are at the discretion (laughs) of the prosecutor. Well, that means that all of us are at the mercy of maybe I don't like you because you're the wrong color, you're the wrong religion, you're you're the wrong political affiliation. That's terrifying. And so we need to protect ourselves against power. And I, I think the beginning of the answer is Foucault. So that, that begs a question for me when I think about new technologies. And this is going to be very vague, so I'm sure there's going to be lots of holes here. But when I think about new technologies, um, especially in communication and um, finance, they're often praised as ways to reclaim power. Uh, from those who um, have too much and for those who don't have enough. But when you take the long view history, it seems like it, it it more often gives more power to those who have it. Um, Technology is powerful. And so how do we know that cryptocurrencies are not uh, wrong term there, sorry, but just like digital assets and this blockchain technology, how do we know that, it might buck that trend and be able to divest power. It would be astonishing if it were able to buck that trend because there's really no (laughs) exceptions. As far as I know, there's literally no exceptions. So um, having cars meant that we were able to drive around without being seen. We had much more mobility. 
but we have to get the car licensed. If I use a credit card anywhere to buy gas, then it's possible to find out where I was. And so ultimately, that technology became one by which my movements could be traced. If you look at Twitter, originally it was claimed that Twitter would be a means, like it was in Tahrir Square in Egypt. Twitter in, in 2011 was a way that people could, could communicate about social movements and sort of get outside of the usual um, state-controlled media, and they organized these protests in Tahrir Square. But then Twitter started to be more closely monitored by the state, and now it's usually possible for the state to track down, block, control the use of uh, Twitter or other social media. So my son, Kevin Munger, actually is a professor at Penn State. He has documented the use of Twitter by the Colombian government um, so the one of the biggest agencies in the government of the, of the country of Colombia in South America, they have a bunch of people who have fake Twitter accounts and they post false information about opposition candidates. And there's these and then they retweet each other and they like it and they all have a lot of followers. And so it looks like this is legitimate information that the opposition candidate has committed some sort of crime, was found with a duck, that has done something horrible. And so the concentrated power metastasizes. That is, it crosses the cell boundaries and becomes powerful in other arenas. And the way that you said it, I think, is right. The state is because of its concentrated power and the incentives for control is always going to move from the regions where it has power into new technologies. Now, finance. A lot of people were very excited about cryptocurrencies. A lot of people were excited about financial assets that were untraceable, but very fast. It's pretty easy to run a sting operation in most countries if you want to buy something. Um, if you also are able to trace the, the, the fact that it was mailed or the, the way that these things are transported or delivered, it's actually pretty difficult to have cryptocurrencies that are entirely anonymous. So I think the blockchain technology may be more important if in democracies the government is forced to provide protocols for privacy. I'm not sure that cryptocurrencies will have the promise that many people think they have for subverting the state. But they might. I might just be wrong about this. This might be the first time where that actually happens. It might be different enough. And so the the motivation for writing the book, is it, it sounds like it's not coming from a place of, oh, this is going to be a utopia. We should embrace this. It'll fix all these problems. It's more like, I see this trend and I think it's very important we discuss this early rather than too late. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to flog all my books, but the, the, the third book ago <laughs> was called Tomorrow 3.0. And the reason it was called Tomorrow 3.0 is that I'm claiming we're in the middle of the third great economic revolution. So the first was the Neolithic, the move to fixed agriculture. The second was the industrial. Both of those were really wrenching. They lasted 100 years or 1,000 years. And they were actually terrible for the people that were at the vanguard. The commodification of labor in the Industrial Revolution meant that people had to move from villages to these horrible cities. And until they found a job and had skills, they almost starved to death. 
So these economic revolutions are really wrenching. But the problem is that economic revolutions do not care what we think of them. They happen anyway because the underlying logic is irresistible. What we can do is mitigate their effects. We can recognize and get out front of it and say, well, here's the, what's likely to be the worst effects. Let's try to reduce the symptoms because we can do nothing about the cause. Economic revolutions don't care what we think about them. So I want to write this to say first, stop talking about antitrust. It's a mistake. Second, worry about power. And then third, here are the things that I think we can do to reduce the worst parts of the symptoms to pre prevent social chaos. Because what I think is going to happen, and this is certainly what happened in the 1840s and 1850s, people lose their jobs. They're looking for somebody to blame, and economic revolutions are hard to blame because they're impersonal. Some demagogue, I know this is hard to imagine, but some presidential candidate will come on and start making claims that it was these people or these people or foreigners or just name what some group. They come up with some mythology. That explains the rise of Hitler, being able to say, you have suffered you are victims, and I am going to restore you to the place of power. Now, I don't mean to co compare all demagogues to Hitler. He was obviously much worse. But politics rewards having some sort of narrative about good and evil, and if you vote for me, I will smite the bad guys. There's no bad guy here. This is just economic logic. So we need to treat the symptoms and not let demagogues cause chaos with movements that try to attack the cause. I think that is a fabulous conclusion, honestly, to this whole conversation. <laughs> that, that that ties it all together because, you know, we're bringing these um, oldest time tropes, this be with me against the other. And it, I, know, I know it's a joke when you threw that out there because we do all see that now, whether we're coming from no matter what side, the right or the left. We're seeing someone we disagree with doing that. And um, now certainly a time to attempt to throw off a few of these partisan uh, trappings and at least listen to the other side, because as you said earlier, there are some valid critiques from the other side uh, to mine. Um, and hopefully we can be a bit better at doing that going forward. <laughs> That, that is the reason that I write, and that is the reason that I speak, in, in, in hopes that I can persuade at least a few people. Well, so we've mentioned a few of your books. Um, if folks would like to read some of the ones that you've published, keep an eye out for possibly some future ones, where, where might they go to uh, get some information on that? Well, probably the best place, uh, if you just want to keep up with what I'm thinking or what I've published recently, uh, would be my Twitter account, which is just Mungowitz. M-U-N-G-O-W-I-T-Z. And my most recent book on the sharing economy is actually available for free as a PDF if you go to the Institute for Economic Affairs website, uh, Institute for Economic Affairs in London. And the, the book is, a, it's available in hardback if you want to buy it, but it's free as a PDF. You can just immediately download it. And it's called The Sharing Economy. And in it, I try to tell the story of um, platforms, and interestingly, I think people did not recognize the extent to which the Sears catalog was a platform. Wikipedia is a platform. There's all sorts of things that aren't really virtual markets in the way that we think about them. So once you start, you said some of these questions are old as time. 
everything old is happening again. It's just happening now in literally virtual form. So the sharing economy on the IEA, IEA website, and it's available for free. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. Well, Michael, you have a great rest of your day. I really appreciate your time. And it's been, on, I'm going to have to listen to this again once we're done. So it's been a great conversation. It was really great to talk to you. And I appreciate that you're doing this. Oh, thank you. Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end. And thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience. And that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week. And that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week. And thank you so much.